There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. All our guilty stains have been washed away. We have been given a new garment to wear. The righteous, blood-soaked robe of Christ himself is ours by grace. That hymn reminds me of what we're looking at this morning here in Colossians in a few moments. It reminds me that the only, the only way we as sinners can come and have true fellowship with a holy and righteous God is by being covered in Christ's righteous blood. His covering brings us into intimate fellowship with God Almighty. And, as you'll see in our text, it brings us into fellowship with the church, with one another, in the body of Christ. And that covering, that covering of Christ's righteousness and his love for us, shouldn't just cover us, it should show up. When we show up, it should show up in the way we live together corporately as a church family. We should see our forgiveness on display as we forgive others, as we love others, as we are kind and merciful and meek toward others in the body of Christ. It's there that the clothes of Christ show up in the church. And the last time I preached, we talked about this. The last time I preached, we learned that we were commanded by God in Colossians 3 to put on that covering. Put on the covering of Christ's life, his qualities. Put it on corporately, and we also saw we need to put it on practically. And as we go through this text in Colossians, you're going to see that we're commanded to continually put on these Christ-like qualities and cultivate unity in the body of Christ out of joy and thankfulness for what we've received in Christ. And in our text this morning, you're going to see that really these instructions ultimately lead to the supremacy of Christ being lifted up through the church. When we know who we are in Christ and we live together in Christ, we put on Christ as a church family, the world sees Christ's supremacy. The world sees that Christ is reigning over us and in us and through us by our love for one another. And today I want to show you how we should cultivate Christ-like qualities practically in our church. And we're going to see that this morning, I pray, from Colossians 3, 12 to 16. So go ahead and open your Bibles with me there. I don't want to read the text to you before we go into it. And I'll give you an outline in just a few moments. There's only two points today, so it's pretty simple. Colossians 3, 12 to 16. I'm going to primarily be looking at verses 15 and 16 in our text, in our sermon here this morning. But listen as I read from verse 12 down to verse 16. The Apostle Paul writes to the church at Colossae, and the Holy Spirit now is giving this to us as a church here in Ada. He says, verse 12, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. 
Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. In this passage, we quickly learn that we cannot cultivate Christ-like compassion and kindness and humility and meekness and patience and love without dwelling in God's Word. Paul ties these together. Put all these things on. And then he says, here's, here's the ultimate one. Put on love. And let the, what? Let the peace of Christ dominate, rule, umpire, direct, control your hearts. Well, the peace of Christ is revealed to us in Scripture. The peace that we have with God is revealed to us in Scripture. And when it is dominating our hearts, it will cultivate Christ-like qualities in our lives. I'm going to give you the outline here. The qualities of Christ-likeness are cultivated by, number one, dwelling on the cross. And number two, dwelling in the Word. It's pretty simple. It's pretty direct. I'll tell you why I say dwelling on the cross in just a moment. I'm going to tell you that because verse 15 sometimes is misunderstood. Sometimes we read that verse and we see it say that let the peace of Christ rule your, in your hearts. We think, oh, the emotion of peace, the feeling of peace, let that rule my heart. Okay, that's true in some sense, but not in the context. It's the peace you have with God through Christ that he's talking about. When you think about that, that will umpire your hearts. That's what he's getting at. And to think about how we receive peace with God through Christ, we have to think about the cross. That's where it came to us at. Our enmity was removed and peace came to us. Irene is the word in Greek that it's used. It's the peace that God has given to us. He has removed hostility and brought us into close proximity now to him through the blood of Christ on the cross. And so what I want to emphasize as this first point is this. Christ-like qualities are cultivated by, number one, dwelling on the cross and doing so thankfully, verse 15 says. Notice that second sentence in verse 15. And, and do so thankfully, right? And be thankful. Well, we, we would be thankful if we think about the cross very much, won't we? We would be very thankful if we think about what Christ has done for us at the cross. We need to dwell on the cross thankfully. He says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Now, the word peace is what I want to focus on for just a moment here. The Greek word here for peace means tranquility or harmony with others. Okay, But you have to read this verse in light of the immediate context and the larger context of the book. And chapter 2 talks about how we receive peace with God through our sins being nailed to the cross with Christ. So when we see this word peace here, he's talking about the peace that isn't just the, the feeling of harmony that we have when things are going well. The peace spoken of here is that which we now have with God through Christ's sacrifice. Again, according to the immediate context of chapter 2. Look at chapter 2, verse 11. In him, speaking of Jesus, you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. By Christ being cut off is what he's talking about. 
having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith and the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And then he says this astounding truth. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debts that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Now this thought is not far behind what Paul is thinking when he writes there in chapter 3, verse 15. Imagine this is your own dialogue. You just talked about this. And when he comes to this, he says, Now, let this peace with Christ that I just mentioned, let it cultivate something in your church. Let it cultivate, cultivate something in your hearts in particular. Let it cultivate thankfulness that will flow into how you interact in the body of Christ. In verse 15, he says, Let this peace you now have with God through Christ rule your hearts. That's another way of saying, let the work of Christ, as you ponder it, let that control your life. Let it control your thoughts. Let it rule your emotions. Let it rule your actions. As you think about what Christ did to save you, let it change the way you view problems in life. Let it change your thinking. As you contemplate how how you have offended a holy and righteous God and how he reconciled you to himself through the blood of his Son... Let that rule in your hearts. Let that rule, let that peace you now have through Christ dominate your thoughts, your emotions, and your actions. He's reminding us here that the peace that Christ brought to us through his cross brought us into harmony with God, and it should then, therefore, bring us into harmony with others in the body of Christ. It should control our lives together in the church. If we dwell upon the cross, I think it will cultivate thankfulness in our hearts to God and thankfulness to God for the church. And it will cultivate harmony, peace in the body. There's not always peace in the body of Christ because we still carry around this indwelling sin in our flesh. And we rub each other the wrong way sometimes. And sometimes there are conflicts. Sometimes there are disagreements. But when you let the peace of Christ dominate your own heart and it sanctifies your mind, it'll sanctify your actions and your patience and your love and your mercy and your tenderness toward others in the body. In verse 15, he, he says simply this, let this rule. Let it rule. And that word rule means literally to umpire in the Greek. It actually means to umpire or to direct. You know what an umpire does, right? I'm not much of a sports guy, but I know what an umpire does. Okay? I mean, he directs the game. He makes the calls. He calls the shots, right? This says, let this peace that you have with Christ now dominate and direct. Let an umpire. That's Paul's point. If you dwell on the cross of your salvation, this peace that you have with God will now control your interactions with others in the body of Christ into which you are called that he mentions there in verse 15 this new peace that we have with god he's telling us now should be the umpire of our life it will call the shots if we dwell upon this it'll help us deal with problems in the body of christ with other christians 
It will help us deal with those things biblically, lovingly, with the goal of reconciliation rather than separation. It will direct us. It will guide us. It will make our choices Christ-exalting choices when we have conflicts. Simply put here in this verse, Paul is saying, if, if you have peace with God through the work of Christ's sacrifice, then you will certainly long to cultivate peace within the church body. You'll certainly want to cultivate peace with others who have been bought by the blood of Christ. You will not want division. You will do whatever it takes to keep division from happening. Now, he's writing this in the context of false teachers coming into their church, trying to separate them, trying to call people over to this side of the room and people to that side of the room and to cause divisions to to separate them so they would follow the false teachers rather than what Paul was declaring here in Colossians. And he's saying, look, you you need to be united. And if you're going to be united, you're going to have to keep your hearts united. Tender by looking at the cross, dwelling on the cross, remembering how you were brought to Christ, and remembering that those others around you in the church were brought the same way to the foot of the cross, and they need grace and mercy and tenderness and compassion. Put on these things, these Christ-like qualities, by dwelling on the cross. And I think he tells us that because God knows the kind of peace that we need in the church is not cultivated by mere sentimental feelings about one another, right? Sometimes I'm not very lovely. Believe it or not. If you don't believe it, ask Sherry, okay? Sometimes I'm not very nice. Sometimes I'm, I'm rather abrupt. And sometimes I might not seem very lovable to you. But your love for me isn't based on my goodness, but my neediness, It's not cultivated by a sentimental feeling about me, a subjective feeling about me. Because our feelings and our our nature is is wishy-washy anyway. But your, your love for me is based on the love that you've received in Christ. And you know that I need that love also. So you cultivate peace. Not out of sentimental feelings, but out of objective reality that God's revealed to us in his word. This This peace that we need to cultivate in our hearts really is given to us by an objective standard. It's not our feelings that cultivates peace. It's our objective guidelines that cultivates peace in the body of Christ. Peace must be cultivated objectively by dwelling not only on the cross, but in God's word. And that's what Paul declares there in verse 16. That's my second point. Christ-like qualities are cultivated by, number two, dwelling in the Word. Not just thankfully now, but also I think very personally he's implying here. Personally. First, it begins in the heart there as we give thanks to God for what we have in Christ. But now he's saying dwell in the Word. And I think, again, it's in a personal way because he says this in verse 16a. He says, let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. Now he's talking about internally. He's talking about you absorbing it, you taking it in, and then you living it out in the body. But he's talking about us individually as well as corporately here. Paul uses the phrase, the word of Christ, and it's synonymous with the word of God, okay? He uses the word of Christ phrase to identify that the revelation of Christ is in the Old and the New Testament, and it all needs to be dwelling in us. Okay, the phrase is another way of saying the word of God. Let the word of God 
We know that's true because in Luke 24, Jesus tells the men on the road to Emmaus and also his disciples that all that was written in the Old Testament was written about him. And so he's saying, when he says this, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, he's saying Old Testament, New Testament. Let the word of God richly take up its abode in you. And God knows we need that. We have a whole lot of other things coming into our hearts, don't we? Every day in the world, the culture that we live in, it is indoctrinating us every time we go on the Internet, every time we turn on the TV. We're being indoctrinated. The world is very good at didactic approaches to instructing people, teaching us their ways, their views, their culture. We need something to counter all that, and the church is countercultural. God knows that if, if we're going to cultivate, though, some kind of Christ-like qualities in this culture, in our lives, we're going to have to be spending time personally in God's Word, dwelling in the Word. I think this morning the call to us as a church is examine your time in the Word. Examine how often you dwell on Christ in comparison to what you do with the rest of your time. How important is this? How essential is it for us as Christians to dwell in the Word, dwell on Christ? Well, I think it's spiritually essential because the world will try to rob us of our joy. This culture will try to steal away our convictions. We need Scripture to guide us, direct us, and we need Scripture to nourish and protect us. When he writes this here, in verse 16a, he says, let the word of Christ dwell. He uses a very special word there, dwell. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Dwell in the Greek here means let it live in you. In other words, let it fill up the abode of your heart. Let it fill you up. And, and when you're filled with something, what does it generally do? It, it controls you. You guys ever been, anybody ever been cut off in traffic driving to Oklahoma City? You, you're filled with something, aren't you? Yeah, you're not filled necessarily with the Spirit at that point. Sometimes you're simply filled with anger. And what does it do? Well, it works its way out of your heart, usually through your mouth or your hands. <laughs> um, whatever fills you controls you. That's the point. Paul knows this. He's reminding us this. God is reminding us this of this. He's saying, look, let the word of Christ take up its abode in every recess of your heart. What will that do? Well, that will push out things that don't belong there. It'll clean the house. It'll clean it out. He's saying his word should take up residence in our hearts. And I think this is a personal admonition here. It's going, to, it's, it's going to have to happen if we want to magnify Christ in the church corporately. It has to start individually with each one of us. It's not enough here on a Sunday morning in an hour-long sermon for you to be washed in the Word, and that's it for the rest of the week. You need to have the Word dwelling in you daily, enriching your mind and your heart, and preparing you for the trials and the work that God has called you into. But you also need to come back here equipped to nourish one another, to help one another in the battle. We live in a fallen world. It's a broken world. It's a, it's a world filled with death and destruction and disease. And it affects all of us, even Christians. 
contrary to the word of faith movement. It affects us. And we need to know how to deal with one another when we're going through these things. And if we don't have the word dwelling, living in our hearts, controlling our hearts, we won't know how to deal with these trials that come into the church. When the word of God moves into your heart, it pushes out what doesn't belong. It pushes out resident sin. It pushes out selfish feelings. And it also brings in and cultivates Christ-like qualities. As the word comes in, we see the glory of Christ. We see what he has done. We see how his spirit now promises to use us as his ambassadors. And it, we're filled. We're now filled up with hope and ability to go into the world, into our community, and to declare the gospel and to stand firm on our convictions because the word of God itself is now dominating our thoughts. We're looking at everything through the lens of scripture from this point on. And that's the way we will, we will survive and thrive as Christians in this culture. I will tell you, if you are not in the word of God on a regular basis, I'll, I'll add to that, if you're not worshipfully in the word of God on a regular basis, not just reading for reading's sake, but reading to see Christ and to magnify Christ and to feed on Christ and to know Christ, if you're not doing that, you won't survive in this culture that we live in today because this culture is bombarding us with evil. He's bombarding us, us with evil every day in every aspect of our life. You can't drive down the highway without being bombarded with evil on a billboard. It's all around us. God wants us to be controlled by something else. He wants us to be controlled by his word. Now, understand, we read this scripture, and when we read it, sometimes people may be prone to just think, well, this is a great admonition from Paul. This is not an admonition from Paul. This is an admonition from God. This is what God wants. This is not what Paul wants, though Paul wants what God wants. This is what God wants, and he inspired Paul to say this. God wants this. He is literally giving us this command to let this word dwell in us richly in every recess of our heart. When the word fills us, here's what it does. It controls us. It controls our thoughts. Listen, what you think ends up being what you do. When you think evil thoughts, you do evil deeds. Sin starts in the mind, in the heart. And it's worked out in the flesh outwardly, later through our actions and our attitudes. But it starts in our thoughts. So whatever captures your mind will capture your heart. It'll capture your life. It'll capture your actions. That seems to be Paul's point. When he says this, he says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. That word richly is a great word. It's a, it's a Greek word that describes excessively rich. Um, Bill Gates is poor compared to this, is what he's saying. We want you to have more of Christ and his word in your heart than Bill Gates has money. All right? Excessively rich. Give, give room. It actually has to do with give ample room for the word of God to take up abode. Stretch out the walls. Expand the room. Give lots of space to the word of God. Let it expand your life, your heart, your actions, your mind, and your motives. Give ample room. Let it richly dwell in you. He's saying let the word of Christ, let the word of Christ Become so deeply implanted in your mind that it dominates your thoughts and transforms your actions. 
to the point of the way you deal with one another in the church, 16b. If you let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, he says this will be the result. 16b, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. You can't teach and admonish one another without God's wisdom. And you come to the church, you gather together on a Sunday or a Wednesday or a a separate meeting of some type, and and you want to encourage one another, you want to instruct one another, but if you're not feeding on the Word, you've got nothing. You've got nothing. I don't need psychobabble. I don't need how-to books. I don't need self-help. I don't need Oprah. I need Christ. I need the Word of God. I need admonishment. I need correction. I need wisdom that comes from God's Word. And the only way we can do this is to have our minds dominated and controlled by the Scriptures. Filling our minds up. Again, out of a worshipful, thankful attitude. That's what verse 15 was emphasizing. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you because of the rule of Christ that is now reigning over you through peace. Let that motivate you out of worship and thankfulness. To dwell on the scriptures. Let it fill your hearts. Let let your hearts be filled up with the word. And his idea is is this. It's it's like a house. It's like a house filled to the rafters. In my case, my hope would be filled to the rafters with books. Okay, Filled to the rafters with books. But then not only that. Somebody brings me another load just as big and stacks it on top. And they just start spilling over richly outside of me, and all of a sudden the spillover starts to do what? It starts to bless others as I teach and admonish in all wisdom. The idea is here to be so filled up with the word that it spills over onto others, into your relationships with others, especially in the church. So at this point I have to ask a question. I ask myself this question, and I don't like my answer, and I hope your answer is better. But ask yourself, how much of God's word spills over into your actions daily? How much of God's word spills over into your interaction with others daily? And if it's not much, ask yourself why. And I think the answer is pretty clear. It could be that we're not dwelling in God's word enough. We're not. I think we're all guilty of this. You guys think of, of Nate and myself up here preaching or teaching. You're thinking, those guys just probably read the Bible all day long. And, you know, listen, that would be my desire. But the flesh is weak and I fall short. Um, I need to get up every morning like you and say, soul, <laughs> why are you downcast? Hope in God. Get in the word. Because my day starts off just as bad as your days. Okay. And so we, we need to be examining how often are we going to God and His Word out of joy, out of thankfulness. And if it's not enough that it's spilling over onto others, then maybe we need to reorder some things in our lives. What's most important? Maybe we need to reorganize or stop going some places. Maybe quit a baseball team. Maybe quit Boy Scouts. Whatever it takes. Quit your part-time job that you just take for extra cash so you can spend more time spilling over onto others through the truth that God's given you in his word. I mean, I'm, this is serious. I, I, I don't say any of that lightly. None of those things are wrong in and of themselves. 
But anything that dominates our minds more than the word of God and our desire to share it with others, we need to examine whether it needs to be cut off. What is most important to us as Christians is the glory of Christ Jesus, our Lord and Master. And we will not glorify him without feeding on his word and spending time sharing it with others. This is what Paul is doing. Paul is the model. You know what I love about Paul? Paul's saying, do all these hard things. And he's doing them. He's doing them. To live as Christ, to die as gain. That's a, great, that's a great anthem. We would sing that. We would agree with that. But Paul did that. He was carried outside of Rome after living in a dark and dingy dungeon in the dark, freezing, cold, dying to have his parchments and a cloak, his word from God, the word of God and, and a cloak, They drug him out of there. They brought him out of there outside the city and they put an axe to his head for Christ's sake. To live is Christ. To die is gain. Do you think he would have went there if his heart wasn't filled with the word of God? Was he prepared for that? Yes, because Christ was ruling in his heart. He had peace with God. He knew that death would bring eternal life. Now, Paul seems like the hero of the faith. But I believe that the same spirit that lives in Paul lives in each one of you. The same word that Paul trusted in is the same word you have in your lap. You have the entire text of God's word right there at your fingertips, on your laptops, on your iPads. You carry it in your pocket every day. We should be able to do more in light of that truth, even than the Apostle Paul did. Paul Paul here in this text, in verse 16, is teaching us that if we are filled up with Christ's word and it's dwelling in us richly, we will be controlled by it and the results will magnify Christ. That's the result. It will magnify Christ's name in the church and in the world. Now, if you'll notice something real quickly here, I'm going to give you a, a didactic lesson here, a teaching moment here on this verse Uh, When you read verse 16, I hope when you read verse 16, it sort of reminds you of another passage of Scripture that you've read that sounds almost identical to it. And if it doesn't, that's okay. Well, we're going to acquaint you with that text right now. Go with me to Ephesians 5. Ephesians 5, 18. The book of Ephesians and the book of Colossians are are sister books, if you will. They're pretty parallel in many ways. Um, And this is one of those ways here. In Ephesians 5, 18 and 19, we're going to see the exact same idea conveyed with slightly different wording. It's going to sound a whole lot like 316 with a little bit of different wording. And the wording difference here is very important because it results in the same thing. Look what it says in verse 18. Do not be drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. 18 and 19 in particular, though, are the focus of this. When you look at Ephesians 5 and Colossians 3 side by side, you see something marvelous here. But by looking at these two parallel passages, we see that the result of being filled with the Spirit, is the same as the result of being filled with the Word of Christ. 
When the word of Christ dwells in you, it controls you and it produces what? Psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, right? Admonishing of one another, thankfulness in your hearts. It produces the same thing. He says in verse 18, don't be filled with wine. Don't be controlled by wine, but be controlled. That's the word filled there. Be controlled by the Spirit. Well, the parallel to that is the word of Christ. The Spirit is the one who inspired the word. We have the word of Christ through the Spirit. And when we're filled with the word of Christ, we're filled with the Spirit. In other words, when you're controlled by the word, you're being controlled by the Spirit of God. That's what it means to live a spirit-filled life. It's not an esoteric, ecstatic feeling. It is tangible. It is knowable. It is powerful. I believe that the Holy Spirit wrote every word we have in this book. And when those words are in our hearts, it dominates and he dominates through it. He dominates our actions. He controls us. That's what it means to be filled with the Spirit. Plain and simple. When, when your mind and your heart is controlled by the words of Christ, and it controls your actions and your thoughts and everything about you, that's God's normative means of sanctifying you. That's how you're set apart to do good works. It's by having the word of Christ in you, knowing I need to do this. I want to do that because the Bible says this. The Bible says that. That's God's normative means of sanctification. And that's very important in the context of Colossians. Here's why. The false teachers at Colossae were teaching that only the spiritually enlightened people who follow their rules, their regulations, and have their mystical experiences can find salvation and sanctification. But that's not what Paul is saying in verse 16. He's saying, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, all of you, everybody, not just the spiritually elite, not just the initiated, not just those who follow these regulations, all those who have the peace of Christ ruling in our hearts can have this. We can have sanctification through God's means of grace, which is the word of truth coming into our hearts, dwelling, making its abode in our hearts. So being filled with the Spirit needs to be understood as being controlled by the Spirit of God through the regular means of grace, the grace that God's given to all who are at peace with God through faith in Christ and what he has done as our reconciler. And that regular means of grace is also equipping us to understand and dwell in the word of God because his spirit is abiding in us. When we talk about the spirit taking up his abode in us, well, when our abode is filled with the words of Christ, we have the spirit's power and we have the spirit's word to guide us. You want to know God's will for your life. You go to work, the Word of God. You look at all the places in Scripture that tells you about God's revealed will, and you examine your life. If you're walking in all of God's revealed will, and then all of a sudden an opportunity comes up and you want to do it, then do it. You're in God's will. The Spirit, if He gives you the desire, He gives you the desire of your heart, then do it because you're not out of God's will. You're walking in the revealed will of God. That won't happen, though, saints, if we don't have the word dwelling in us. We've got to take it in. 
We've got to be absorbing this word in order for it to control our lives. Being filled with the Spirit simply means that we're controlled by the Word of God. So, so again, let me ask you another question. What is controlling your life? What is controlling your mind? What's dominating there? What's dwelling in there? What controls your entertainment choices? What controls your downtime? What controls your ministry? What controls your attitude in your marriage? What controls your perspective on parenting? What do you invest the most time in? God's word or secular thinking? What do you spend most, the most time in? God's word or the wisdom of the world? What the TV talking heads say? What the advice of others say? What self-help books say? What psychology says? Where do you get your guidance? What dominates your thinking? Now, all of those may have little nuggets of truth here and there. But understand this. All the nuggets of God's truth are on the surface, but the deep and the abiding veins of his richest, richest gold is down deep and it takes time to get into it. And when you get into it, you won't want anything else. This is all you will want. You'll want his riches, his greatness, his grace, his guidance. The world's wisdom will fade in comparison to these truths, but it takes time to get into them. We have to put them on. We have to get in and read. We have to get in and spend time in prayer, asking God to help us be more self-controlled. Listen, church, when, when the word of Christ controls us, though, here's the beauty of it. We begin, as it controls us, we begin to put on Christ-likeness. His qualities will begin to manifest themselves in our church practically and corporately as we gather as a church family. And when that happens, we'll begin to magnify Christ here locally in our church and globally, I believe, in the world as we go out into it. When it happens, when, when the word of Christ dominates and dwells in all of our hearts, we will long to exalt Christ in everything we do and everything we say. Our gatherings on Sunday morning will be transformed from an event to an act of worship. Our interaction on Sunday mornings will be transformed into a time of spiritual edification, not just, hey, how was the football game last week? Everything will be changed as the word of Christ dwells in our minds and our hearts and the peace of Christ rules our hearts. We'll be teaching, as it said there in 16b, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. As the word dwells in us individually, it will flow out of us corporately. That's his point. We will long to teach others in all wisdom from the word. Whenever another saint comes to you, another Christian comes to you, and they're confused by a doctrine, they're confused by their sin, whatever it may be, you will long to instruct them and love them and guide them in all wisdom. And that wisdom will come from the Word, and they will be fed by you, nourished by you, and they will love you because you love them enough to teach them according to God's Word. So ask yourself, is that happening? Is that happening here? Are you doing this? Are you so filled with the word that when you hear of other people's problems in the church, you're going to them saying, brother or sister, I want to help you, but I have no personal experience like this, but I have the word of truth. I have a 
a guide here that I know will cut to the heart of the issue. And though I can't relate to you personally, I can tell you what God says here biblically. Let me show you. Let me take you there. Let me spend time with you. Let me pray with you. Admonishing you. If the word is dwelling in us so much that it's spilling out of us, that's what will happen. That's a Christ-like quality coming out of us. When we long to admonish one another in all wisdom, that's, that's Christ-like qualities coming through us. Didn't Jesus admonish his followers? Don't you love the story of Peter and Jesus? And Peter's like super gung-ho, you know, air ranger kind of disciple, you know. He's like, I will die with you. I'll whip out a sword and cut guys' ears off. I'll do whatever it takes, you know. And, and then in the next breath, Jesus says something about going to the cross and dying. And Peter's like, no, I'm not going to let that happen. And then comes the admonishment. Get behind me, Satan. Peter was thinking like Satan. He needed to be admonished. But then he turns around, even after Peter denies him three times while he's being tried before the cross, Jesus comes to him three times afterwards and restores him. If you're filled with the word of Christ, that's what will come out of your life. When you see others in the church in need of correction, you'll long to go and serve them. As the word dwells in us, it will flow out of us. We need to keep that in mind. If we're dwelling in the word, our gathering will not be routine. It will be spirit empowered and it will bring sacrifices of praises to God that will be filled with thanksgiving to our Savior and thankfulness for this church family. Now, verse 16, if I have time to get to this. Verse 16, the latter half, we see what this should look like. Not just in the personal interaction, but in the corporate gathering. Let me read the verse. It says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. Then he says this. Now, that's, that's personal, teaching and admonishing one another. That's, that's personal, right? The word dwelling in us, spilling out of us, onto others personally as we teach and admonish. But then he moves from personal to corporate, to the church. Singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Church, what he's saying is this. When, when we are spirit-filled, when we are word-controlled, this is what it will look like. Thankfulness to God will be cultivated in our hearts, and that thankfulness will not only be seen in our own personal hearts, but in our corporate gathering. That thankfulness will be heard from our mouths. I'm going to give you a twist on a verse from the Gospels. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth praises God. Whatever's filling up the heart will come out of the mouth. And when you gather together on a Sunday with a bunch of redeemed sinners who are amazed by the gospel and love Jesus, and we begin to sing songs, we should be filled with so much thankfulness that this building rattles when we sing these songs of praise to our God, because out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth will speak. All acceptable worship begins with being filled with the word of God. True worship is biblical worship. It comes out of us by what we feed on. We feed on the truth. The truth wants to come out. The nature of the gospel is to go forth with it. And it comes out of us. It edifies the saints. It evangelizes the lost. And our fellowship should reflect that. Our gathering should reflect that. 
Our fellowship and our singing should overflow with what's in our hearts. Our singing should be done with deep gratefulness to God and with deep joy in our hearts coming out of our mouths. Most of us can't sing here very well. That's just the truth, all right? Tim, he can sing. Denny can sing. Brett can sing. Um, He's not looking at the quality of the singer. He's not looking at the style of the music here. He is looking at the abundance of the heart overflowing and coming out of the saints with hymns and psalms and spiritual songs. Our singing should be diverse in that sense. But it should have one common denominator. That's the word of truth. That's what makes our singing praiseworthy to God. We don't need another Jesus is my boyfriend song sang in a church. We need to be singing doxologies. We need to be singing truth to God, giving him praise. It needs to be in line with his word if we're going to do that. If it's dwelling, if God's word is dwelling in our hearts, it will cultivate a desire to praise him with our mouths. Now look on further down there in in verse 16. He's simply saying, look, these, these, these songs that come out of you when you gather together, they're full of biblical truth because Christ is dwelling in you richly and it'll come out of you, make you want to sing biblically here. And I hope that's the way we would describe our singing. I hope it's biblical and I hope it's thankful singing. It may not be the best and the prettiest, but it may be truly God-exalting if it's biblically driven and joyfully given, right? If it's not, then we need to think about how much time, again, are we spending in God's Word. And listen, very importantly, for the Puritans, Saturday night was the beginning of the Sabbath day. In other words, it was a day to prepare their hearts to come together with the saints on Sunday, the Lord's Day, and worship Him. They would set aside time on Saturday night, put aside all their worldly endeavors to cultivate a biblical and spiritual mindset so that when they come on Sunday, this is a a holy convocation. Now, I'm not saying you can't watch TV, you can't go to the movies, you can't go out on a date. But what I'm saying is you need to take into consideration how much time you spend in preparation before the Sunday gathering. Before we come together to sing, we need to be filled with the word. We need to be dwelling in the word so that we can cultivate what it says here in 316. So we can dwell in the word and cultivate psalms to God, psalms to God, a desire to sing psalms. You guys know what a psalm is? Most of you probably know. We have those in the scriptures, right? Psalms are word driven teaching tools that are derived directly from God's word. And and psalms primarily extol God's attributes and they comfort man's weaknesses. That's what they do. The psalms extol God and all his characteristics. And they expose how weak we are in comparison. And they give us hope in God, right? God God wants us to sing these songs, psalms. He he wants his word to be driving our singing. He wants us to sing not, not just psalms, but his psalms. These are songs God wrote. I mean, we sing songs that, you know, goofy people write, right? I mean, we sing songs. You guys listen to the radio, you know, come on. You know, we, we listen to country or to rock or to whatever it may be. And these people are ridiculous, right? But we sing out loud. We sing these songs. And you know what? We buy their records. We, we watch the award shows and we talk about how great they are. But how great is our God who gave us his songs 
And they're inspired songs. And they're songs that he wants us to sing. So Paul's saying, look, when, when you gather, dwelling on the word, let this be the result. Praising God through his psalms. Also, praising God through, his, through hymns. Hymns. Now, hymns are not written or inspired by God. They're written by men. Hymns, though, are, again, like psalms, they're, they're teaching tools. Hymns reinforce biblical truths that we see in Scripture. Hymns are, are written for that purpose. They're to teach the saints. You know why they were written in the first century? They didn't have a copy of the Bible to carry around, so they could memorize a song. So they memorized a hymn. And the hymns were didactic. That means they were teaching hymns. They could be remembered because they could be easily memorized. You didn't have a Bible to carry around, but you had the word and that truth in your mind. There's an example of one. Let me show you real quickly. There's an example. Actually, I don't know if you know this, but in the New Testament, there are many hymns, many old hymns that the first century Christians wrote and that God used as his inspired text here. But one of them is in 1 Timothy 3.16. He says, notice, great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness. And that's another way of saying this is the confession that we make as a church when we come together. Okay, It's a confession song. He says, here's the, the mystery of godliness. He. Now, if you have a King James, it actually says God was manifested in the flesh. Speaking of Jesus. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Now, this is a song, saint. This is a hymn. Every one of these words in the Greek and each one of these lines rhyme. Every single line has a rhyming word that connects it to the other one. This was done so that we would actually be able to sing this doxology to God in a very memorable and simple way. That first part was speaking of Jesus being disclosed in his humanity, and then secondly, defended in his deity, and then displayed in his victory, and then declared in his work, the work of the Spirit, evangelistically. And then he depended on the Spirit of God to work through him supernaturally, and he departed in glory. This is all that's going on in that passage. It's a fantastic song. It's a hymn of our faith. We still have hymns like this today. Holy, 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 right? Great is thy faithfulness. Rock of ages. Those are, those are hymns that teach biblical truths. Because God wants us to carry his truth in our hearts. And songs and hymns, psalms and hymns are easy ways to do that. Lastly, verse 16 of Colossians 3. God wants us to cultivate not just psalms and hymns, but spiritual songs. And spiritual songs are another way to teach God's word in a memorable way to all of us, to kids and to adults alike. Spiritual songs are simply this. Another way of saying it is these are testimony songs. A spiritual song is a testimony song. It's a story song. For example, we sang one this morning. It is well with my soul. That is a spiritual song. It's a testimony song. We sang another one, the gospel song. The gospel song is a testimony song. We sing another one a lot, Amazing Grace. That's a spiritual song. These are songs that reflect our heart and keep us focused on Christ's work. God wants us to do this. He wants us to easily recall his redeeming love. And don't we do that through those songs? Easily recall them, right? My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole. You guys know the next line, don't you? 
is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. It is well with my soul, right? You knew most of that before I read it. Because it's easily taken in. And it's your story that the gospel brings out to us clearly. God wants us to cultivate this in our hearts. He wants us to cultivate his word so deeply in us that it comes out in our fellowship and it comes out in our songs. Saints, I've got much more to say and I'm going to stop. But I want you to know this. In Ephesians 5, 18 and 19, when, when God says there that we need to be filled with the Spirit, the actual Greek text is you need to be being kept filled. Sounds redundant, but it's not when you think about it. God puts his word into broken vessels. We leak. <laughs> the word of God, by feeding on it daily, the bread of life fills us up. And it fills up the cracks. It seals us. And it prepares us for useful purposes. Right? We need to continue be being kept filled with the word of God. Let me just say this. If we want to put on Christ-like qualities personally and thankfully, this is how we do it, biblically. We, we let the peace that we have with Christ rule our hearts and the word of Christ fill our hearts. And then we will continue to be amazed by the gospel and share it very gratefully, thankfully, and live in it corporately and share it with one another Again, joyfully. So, saints, let, let's let the peace of Christ keep on ruling our hearts by dwelling in his word daily. I, I just say this. I would, I would admonish you to examine your time with God in his word. Why do you go there? How often do you go there? How long do you stay there? Now, I think there's an aspect of good discipline where we need to just be you know, dedicated to read the Bible every day. But I pray that as you do that, it, it turns into a joy. It turns into an act of worship. And I would say this, anytime you open God's word, look for Jesus. Look for Christ. Look for the gospel. Look for the gospel truth in that story, in that narrative, in that poem, in that song. Look at it and then stop and rejoice over it. And let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word of truth. We thank you for your grace that is abundant as it comes to us through your revelation. As you fill us with your spirit and you equip us for the work of ministry, we pray, God, that we would do the duty that we are required of in opening your word joyfully and thankfully in light of what you've done for us in the cross of Christ. Jesus, we love you. We thank you for another day to grow in the grace and knowledge of your wisdom and Lord, we pray that you would apply it to our lives and send us out into the world so that we would rejoice in the gospel in such a way that others would ask us about the hope that lies within us and that we would share the gospel with fear and with, with gentleness, knowing that you have brought us together to magnify Christ evangelistically as a church body. We pray that you would be glorified in all that we do today in Christ's name. Amen.